You're listening to This Thing We Call Art, a podcast about the life of being an artist and all the things that do or don't go into supporting the ability to make art. I'm your host, Kelly Lloyd, a visual artist, essayist, and educator currently based in the UK. I've been interviewing people in the arts about their livelihood since 2017, and today you're going to hear a conversation I had on the 1st of March, 2021 with Gordon Hall. Gordon Hall is an artist based in New York who makes sculptures and performances. Hall has had solo exhibitions at the MIT List Visual Arts Center, the Portland Institute for Contemporary Art, the Renaissance Society, MPAC, and Temple Contemporary, and has been in group exhibitions at the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Brooklyn Museum, the Hessel Museum, Art in General, White Columns, Socrates Sculpture Park, among many other venues. Hall's writing and interviews have been published widely, including in Art Journal, Art Forum, Art in America, and BOM, as well as in Walker Art Center's artist op-ed series, What About Power? Inquiries into Contemporary Sculpture, published by Sculpture Center, and Documents of Contemporary Art Queer, published by Whitechapel and MIT Press. A volume of Hall's collected essays, interviews, and performance scripts was published by Portland Institute for Contemporary Art in 2019. Hall is assistant professor of sculpture at Vassar College and will be the 2022 resident faculty at the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture. I met Gordon in 2013 during a studio visit we had right before their lecture at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, or SAIC. Then I interviewed Gordon for Canon, an annual publication that the first year Visual and Critical Studies, or VCS, MA students put together about how Gordon and I and several other people had chosen to pursue two master's degrees at the same time at SAIC. Gordon graduated in 2011 with an MA in VCS and MFA in Fiber and Material Studies, while I graduated in 2015 with an MA in VCS and MFA in Painting and Drawing. I've reflected often on our conversations and continued to follow Gordon's work and was so thankful for this opportunity to speak with them again. Our conversation was two and a half hours long, and while I wish I could share it with you in its entirety, today you'll listen to excerpts from it. I'm going to drop you in at the beginning. It was really nice to go to your event. When was it? Was it yesterday? Saturday. 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 Yeah. How do you think it went? I thought it was really nice. I really didn't know what people were going to bring. And we planned it like I planned it in collaboration with the people from AIR. Um, And so they chose half the people and I chose half the people. So the people they chose, a couple of them, I've never met them and I didn't know much about their work. So not only was I surprised by what my people brought, but I also was surprised by what their people brought. And I loved all of it. I thought it was like a really nice cross section. Um, And I like the structure for the event. I mean, I like short things. I feel like most long things could be short things, Um, you know, and then especially on Zoom, I just think long things are hard for people. It's really hard to listen. And then I liked the structure of, um, it's not like I'm the artist who presents something and then here's these other people analyzing or describing or trying to like say what my thing was about. It's more like they're using the thing I made as a point of departure for whatever they wanted to do, which for some of them was read somebody else's writing and others of them, it was something they wrote at a previous time and then to others, it was something they wrote for the event. So that was also a nice mix of different kinds of reading. And the vibe was really sweet and loving. 
I think there's aspects of the conversation around what the pandemic has meant in terms of feminist issues that I think might have been gestured toward but weren't talked about explicitly. And I think if I could go back again, I would have given an introduction that was more like based in the facts, you know, like describing just the numbers of what has happened to women and what's happened to women of color and and just like how this collapsing of work and home has affected people in such uneven ways. But since I didn't really know what anybody was going to do and I felt like just presenting my book was sort of like a lot of effort for me. So, so that's what I ended up doing. But yeah, it was really sweet and um, I thought the... Yeah, the general mood among all the speakers was very loving and kind and as sort of like embodied and present as we could be. Um, And then, of course, I'm sad because my favorite thing about doing stuff in public is going out afterwards. Yeah. Did you have like a Zoom drink or something afterwards? No. We like hung out for a minute afterwards after everyone left and then we were just like, peace. And then I celebrated here with my partner instead um yeah the debrief is like the most important part of basically anything so yeah and I didn't really get to know the people like the the women at air there's three of them Roxana Mindy and Patty and I wrote a thousand emails with them I've never met I've met Roxana once like years ago but the other two I've never even met so I don't know these people really and that thing where you go out afterwards and eat french fries and drink a martini together is like when you actually get to know each other and so now I feel like you know it worked well as a work relationship but the kinds of things that you know the kinds of conversations that develop or friendships or like other projects that kind of emerge out of actually getting to know each other didn't happen and just the fun like I hate going to my own openings they're not fun for me but I really like going out after the opening that is very fun so now it just feels like none of the fun things happen really yeah and I'm fine but still it's just kind of this unfolding thing of all the things that I have lost or like all the things that I'm missing or all the things that I don't get to have and um yeah and it's like those middle bits that are sometimes like the most fulfilling part of it or the most sustaining part of it or something but yeah how do we like facilitate the thing in light of the tools that we have at hand yeah yeah well it's so funny it's like what it boils down to is pictures of sculpture aren't sculpture and alcohol (laughs) or like being in a loud loud crowded space together but you know then there's these upsides like Terry is in Chicago, Nikito is in LA, Roxana is in Uruguay with her family. And, you know, and so that wouldn't have been able to happen. You know, that group of people wouldn't have been able to be live together before. So I was trying to, yeah, I was like hoping, and especially because the book was trying to find some little sliver of um, beauty or significance or like deeper meaning in this compromised scenario. So I've been trying to look on the bright side about it, but I've been like teaching the whole time, like talking about people's artwork on Zoom is just, unless they're making 
not only screen-based art, but screen-based art that's of the kind that you're supposed to watch on your own screen, which yeah. is a very specific like slice of production. Where do you teach? Where don't I teach? Um, uh, let's see. I've been teaching it at SAIC in the low res program for many years, like since 2015 or 16, but different degrees of involvement. So I have students I advise mostly. That's what I've been doing. So I'll have like one or two or three students at a time that I meet with under normal conditions in person three times over the course of the semester. And then I started teaching an online class there a couple years ago, which is really interesting because I didn't have the experience I have now with teaching an online class. So I feel like if I teach it, and but it got it got canceled in the fall this year because enrollment is, or no, in the spring, enrollment is so unpredictable. And then likewise, I had a class at RISD that I was supposed to teach online in the fall that got canceled. And then I have random students, like I have one student at Carnegie Mellon and one student at Leslie University slash Tufts, um, both MFA students who I am like their out of network advisor. What do they call it? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I've been like doing all of that for years and, oh, and last year I had a full-time job for a year. I was, uh, I had a fellowship in the sculpture department at RISD. So I was classes, but also like service and committees and grad students. And so I was commuting back and forth from the city to Providence. And I like had this, it's actually very sweet. This like really, really nice lesbian family with two daughters, like let me stay in their attic. I mean, I paid them rent, but it was really adorable. They would like kind of look after me. Yeah, but I was there half the week. So that was kind of a mixed bag. I mean, the experience teaching was amazing, but I hardly got any of my own stuff done for like a year yeah do you like what's the timeline on turning an opportunity like that into like a you know like an like a full-time job that lasts for longer than a year or something is that something that like I don't know you would hope for immediately afterwards or like several years down the road or this is a big topic which I'll try not to make our whole conversation about with the RISD job for example they do these fellowships, they're called provost fellowships, and they're very good and generous and benefits and all of that, but it's non-renewable. Like, there is no... They would have to officially open a search in the department that I'm in or in another one that's suitable for me, and then I would apply just like everybody else. The fellowship I was invited to do, and then I kind of applied by invitation, but it was sort of understood... And that's how adjunct teaching works. It's all just like kind of behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, I finished grad school in 2011 and I was assured by everybody in VCS and everywhere else that I was like a shoe-in to get any job I wanted because, you know, not only did I have this MFA, but I had this additional master's degree and I, you know, and like, I wasn't one of the worst people at all. And it's been impossible. There aren't jobs. Like they are so competitive anyway. So it's frustrating. Um, I mean, the job at RISD was informative because I'd never actually taught that much and I couldn't get any of my own work done. 
So then I started thinking maybe I dodged a bullet by not having that right away because maybe I wouldn't have actually done all the work I've done, which is like what I really care about. I'm not trying to be a teacher only. I want to be an artist primarily. Um, but it's been really frustrating because I can't get financially stable or job stable. I mean, there's more to talk about it too because I have like family money and other things. That I have a lot of shame about relying on because I was sure, sure that I would, maybe it would be a crutch for like the first year, you know, and then I would be fine. And I have not been able to be fine ever, except the year I worked at RISD. I mean, that sounds really shitty. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I went through a hiring year at SAIC and it was really interesting. It, um, yeah, it like showed me kind of what some of the super fucked up mechanics of it are. You know, it's like they want people from the outside. Um, and also like, I guess I need gallery representation, but also more importantly, it like doesn't really matter how long you've taught and if you're a good teacher or not, like what matters are all of these professional things, which like, yeah, sure. Okay, maybe that's important. Um, I like to have an active working knowledge of like, you know, the field when you're talking to students, but also like you should be a decent teacher. Like you should have a decent track record of like being a teacher and that's just not prioritized at all. And so I feel like I definitely saw my friends for years just chasing after these adjunct jobs where they got like one thing here, you know, just kind of were piecemealed along. It's just like really interesting to be like, God, is there any way? Like, is there any way to do this correctly, actually? I have so many thoughts about it. I mean, one thing I found, I don't know if comforting is the word, but post-2008, the schools never recovered. There's like 70% fewer tenure track jobs than there were in like 2005. And the well-meaning people who gave me the good advice that it would be easy, it's not that they were trying to mess with me, it's that the world has changed. And college teaching is now like Uber driving. It's like a gig economy. And it's all about these schools that are run like corporations where the president gets like a million and a half dollars a year and like you don't get health insurance. Even if you're teaching like three classes for $20,000 a year or something. I mean, it's so... <laughs> awful and it's i mean it, it's systemic it's part of the stage of capitalism that we're in there's so many things that are wrong with it aside from my own personal frustrations but you know having taught at all of these different schools the talk about diversity inclusion equity you know endless but then you take this thing and basically the answer to your question how does it work out is you stay in the game as an adjunct for like 15 years supporting yourself some other way or having some other money which basically makes it so the people who <laughs> like finally get their good job at 40 it's basically weeded out anyone who actually needed to support themselves or like had children or like supported their family or like any other scenario Ugh, it's so frustrating so then the and then they wonder like oh why is our faculty like 95 percent white it's like because the whole thing is set up to like make it so you can't do it without being rich basically that is and it's so angering and obviously i feel very implicated because my participation has been predicated on having some other money to make it so that i can essentially feel like i'm volunteering which is what i feel like i'm doing um also for my own joy because i like teaching so much exactly. I like yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah 
So it's very frustrating. Oh, the final thing I was going to say was, and then the kicker is, because I work with grad students so much, they will ask me, like, so should I pursue teaching? Like, what should I do when I graduate with my $100,000 of debt and um, <laughs> this degree? <laughs> and I, it's not appropriate, really, for me to ask them about their financial situation. But I essentially want to be like, unless you want to teach for fun, don't pursue this because you can't. Or, and this is something that I should admit, if you're willing to move to like Indiana, maybe, or Boise, Idaho, or somewhere, you know, like there's other cities, which probably wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. But I wasn't at the point ever where I was like, willing to do that for my own happiness and mental health, but also like, when I was single, I was like, well, then I'll just be alone forever because, like, how many people who date trans people are going to live in this random city? And then once I was partnered, like, five years ago up until now, I'm not going to bring him somewhere random because that would ruin his life. So none of it makes sense to me. I mean, it's real. How much of your own life are you willing to give up for a job? Like, that. <laughs> there are lines that are worth not crossing, I think. Yeah. And that's something I'm thinking a lot about in terms of like, because I move around so often um, and I feel like I move around to take advantage of opportunities. But at a certain point, you're like, um, seems like not a great gamble. But I think that, you know, this question of like, how has my life been just kind of accumulating accomplishments? And how is it that that's maybe not actually like, how you live a good life and also especially when this accumulation doesn't get you what you want like sure yeah maybe like you can struggle for like you know a handful of years if you know at the other end you're for sure going to get like a tenure track position or like that there's going to be several moments of my life where I'm not just struggling for money all of the time you know um yeah sure I'd throw like a handful of years at that but like <laughs> once it just kind of seems like this um you know, never ending pit. Um, yeah, you wonder like what's worth sacrificing for what? And what are you relying on to work out that you have to kind of be like, you know what? I have to be okay even if this doesn't work out. Um, I don't know. I'm thinking a lot about that, <laughs> so. Yeah. God, it's so funny. My instinct right now is to be like, but it'll be okay for you. Like, you'll come back to the States with your PhD from Oxford and you're going to be so hireable and you're so accomplished and it's going to be totally fine and you're going to get like a bomb tenure track job. And that is a possibility. I mean, it happens. But yeah, it's kind of like just that's plan A and then you have to have like plan B, C, D, and E. Um, Thank you for telling me that. That's what I want to hear, you know? Um, yeah, like what if we just went to school and then our professors were like, listen, like find something that you love <laughs> apart from this and invest as much in that to make you money um, as you do in this. Um, yeah. I mean, if I had spent two years after grad school, like learning graphic design, for example, I could have saved myself a lot of trouble. It's so hard though. It's so hard. Like I have a ton of debt from VCS and from my MFA, but I wouldn't trade in my experience at VCS for anything, personally, in terms of 
the way it helped me like develop as a thinker and as an artist nobody's paying me to say this by the way you know and ultimately that's what being an artist is to me it means I am excited living in my own mind forever my best companion is like in the world of my studio and that god I sound like a fucking credit card like that is priceless and so what amount of wreckage of other parts of my life are worth that? Like, maybe any. It's a devil's bargain. Like, you shouldn't have to choose like that. But it just feels worth saying that even if someone had told me, like, strategically, this probably won't result in X, Y, and Z outcome. Like, are you ready for that? I probably would have been like, sure. And even now, I would still be like, yeah. Because this was the best thing. I don't know. It's compl- It's really complicated. I think I'm in a better mood about it because recently, during the pandemic, my partner and I decided to move upstate. And it's changed everything. Like, I don't feel like I need to get a full-time job anymore because it's so much cheaper up here. And I have all this studio space. And I can just, like, go make art all the time. And now my career is good enough that, like, money comes in from commissions and sales and this and that and my little bits of teaching. And I finally am like... I should have done this a thousand years ago. What was I doing spending like 70% of my money on my rent (laughs) living in the city? But then also I met so many people and I did so many things there and my life is how it is because I live there. So it's hard to say, but I do feel like leaving a really, really expensive place to live is like (laughs) the key to just, and I feel this incredible. I've even been applying for jobs this year. There's a couple, but I just have this feeling like I could take it or leave it. Yeah. And the weight lifted off me, not just like, oh, I need to make this happen, but the the shame of not being able to have what I want or like failing. I feel freed from it. It's been amazing. I've been like very happy during the pandemic, which is so wrong, but it's taken a lot of the pressure off of the like rat race of my life to just let me be like, what do I want to do? I want to make art. We're going to adopt a kid, you know, and that's what matters. So I've moved into a different stage about it. So now I'm like, oh, it was fine. But like, it wasn't fine. It isn't fine. But I feel less angsty about it now, I guess. Just technical question. So when you give like a performative lecture, an experimental lecture, a performance that is also a lecture, do you like in your CV, do you put it under like performance lectures? I don't really like the way it's broken up. And on my website, I have it really differently, which is just current and past. And when I first made the site, which was 10 years ago now, it was like a revelation to realize that it's all work and it can all just pile up. Because up until that point, and even still sometimes, I'll be like, well, you know, I'm sure you have this. I'm an artist, but compared to other artists, I don't make as as much work as they do or have as many shows as they do. And I'm a writer, but compared to other writers, like I haven't written a book and I don't publish all the time and I'm not an academic and I'm basically bad at that too. And I do this curatorial work, but like compared to other people who do it, it's very scrappy and infrequent. So basically I just do a lot of stuff and I'm bad at all of them. There's the spiral. I don't really have this anymore. 
but I had it a lot, especially starting out, you know, like feeling like, how am I ever going to get good at any of these things when I'm trying to constantly juggle them all in and then, yeah, like strategically balance them out so that not one of them doesn't take. Now I wish I had spent less time worrying about what other people perceived that I was doing, but maybe even just in terms of my own time, like there's only so many hours in a week. So what do I want to spend them doing? Right. And there were times where it would be like every day I'd be working on the CEL and that wasn't really what I want to be doing with all my time. Um, but then over time, yeah, I mean, it's like you said, I just think saying this is all work. Some of it I think of as like capital A artwork and others of it I think of as maybe a more interesting category, which is sort of, yeah, these like interstitial kinds of projects or like I always thought bands that artists are in are actually like the best bands because it's not the main thing that they do. When people do things that aren't the main thing they do, they're often freed of all this baggage and pressure and tension and there can be really great you know which is why I like the whole lecture performance idea because it sort of is and isn't your real work you know but yeah being able to just say all of this is what I make it's all interconnected it takes slightly different forms but the central questions are the same and I can articulate that and so it doesn't matter you know I think that's the better way to think of it and I find that other people care less and less. I remember being in grad school and worrying a lot. I think all VCSers kind of worried, like, am I an artist or an academic? And do I have to choose? And it felt like this really big deal to be like, no, I do both. But it mattered a lot less afterwards, like what pocket you were going to put yourself in. Because and because there's such a history of artist, curator, writers, different people who do all kinds of different stuff. And I think it's fine. Yeah. And for me, it keeps life interesting because you don't have to go and do the same thing every single day. Really? I feel like this is exactly what we talked about in the Canon article. Um, and it was really nice to remember that because it was like, oh, maybe this is something that is kind of like a long running part of my art practice, just like talking to people. Wait, so did you get your MFA in sculpture or fiber? Fibers. Fiber. Yeah. I mean, I loved I loved my degree. Like I loved both the painting department and VCS. And both of them were like incredibly useful in very different ways. Um, but it was really fascinating how people policed like disciplinary boundaries. I, so I'm in this program right now. I'm in a practice-led fine art program. I'm in the fine art program. They have a practice-led track and they have a contemporary art history theory track. But it's weird, even when you get into a program that like is an interdisciplinary program, how people still try to like understand you through defining your limitations, which are actually their limitations. But anyways, it was really interesting reading through the canon and knowing that at the time I needed to be told by you, right, that like, um, that there are some people out there that like aren't confused by like being in this interstitial space. I don't know. And maybe it's become like a foundational part of my identity in a way, just because like it's, um, it's a reoccurring issue for people. I think that there's so many aspects of what you just said and you articulated it really well. I mean, I think it's, it's on the one hand, it's an institutional situation, which is just that, 
institutions, both academic institutions and in most examples, museum institutions, are structured in a disciplinary way. And so um, it's, it's just messes things up when you work between them. And it's kind of an interesting thing where, you know, everybody loves interdisciplinarity kind of as an idea. And so these programs get kind of hatched, but then the institution can't really support them fully. So like you remember the endless fights at SAIC with the administration, both just to explain what we did and keep the program open, but also to get us studios because it couldn't be explained like why we need the art history lounge and the studios. Um, I mean, they're practical things. I kind of like that they're like funny spatial things, but it's one thing to have interest in an interdisciplinary form and it's quite another to actually support it. So another example that I've had many times with museums with the lecture performance form is they want that. They want artists to give performances instead of just talks and whatever. But then when you're like, I need this many dollars and I need to be able to bring an object in and I need to not be wearing shoes and I need, and they're like, oh no, like the registrar doesn't know what to do with that object because is it an artwork or not? Literally, I mean, it's so funny. Like we don't know whether we should insure that thing because we don't know whether or not it's an artwork. And I'm like, that's the point. Isn't that what you wanted? But, you know, or education doesn't have the budget to pay for this because if it's a performance then it's curatorial and they're commissioning work so you can't call it a performance you have to call it a program anyway it's just so 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 funny um i mean funny is one word for it it's it's exemplary of the difference between being interested in interdisciplinary forms and actually restructuring things to be able to accommodate them. I think one really good example is actually what the new museum has done. And I'm sure there's other examples of this too, but their education department is, I mean, it's partly because they're so small compared to other, you know, MoMA and other big museums. The education department is woven into the curatorial platform. So the fifth floor is their like educational gallery. And so they have artists working on exhibitions that also have all of this educational component to it. I think that's how education departments should work. And they don't care. They don't, they're not worried whether it's curatorial or education. The other aspect of this that I just want to mention, I mean, I think it touches on questions around people's inclinations to want to just know what you are i mean it's like such a fundamental human problem and it's one i'm very interested in like reading like how do we read people and why are we so quick to be like you're this you're this you're this in terms of race in terms of gender in terms of like a million different signifiers and what would it be like to just not know or kind of tell but not care you know and to let or at least to let the period of time in which you're not sure last longer um and they feel very interconnected like these questions of like are you an artist or an academic is very similar to all kinds of other questions of reading and honestly i think it has to do with laziness or a nicer term is just the amount of additional not just mental energy, but the kind of practice it takes to really inhabit that space of accommodating in-betweenness. 
or just kind of delaying of making a solid read. It's just, it's a lot of energy to cultivate that as like, you're really changing how your vision's working, you know, or how your perceptual faculties are working. And that's hard. You can't just like decide, do it one day. Um, as hard as reorganizing a huge, huge institution. So all the offices have to get collapsed and everybody gets hired and fired and all gets moved. Around. Like it's hard, you know? Um, so that's my sympathetic take on it, which is rarely do I meet people for whom the intentions to not support this kind of work or these different forms of reading where the intention isn't there, but the actual work you have to do to back up the intention is a lot more complicated and it involves other things no longer being supported, which nobody wants to do that, you know, especially if something is very established and old and has value. So I think it's, yeah. it's a, it's a fight that's worth fighting, um, but it's quite complicated and, and, you know, things that are easy to, to do get done quickly and things that are hard to do take a long time like, or are, never happen. Yeah. In terms of reorganizing institutions, right. So it's quite interesting that I, um, that I'm also at Oxford at this particular point in time, because of course they're having all these conversations about race. Um, and, you know, and it's just so interesting to be there for the perpetual conversation where they're like, we don't know what to do. What should we do? And then it's like, you, yeah, like, you know what you have to do. You're just unwilling to do it. And so like, you're dragging us in and then half listening to us. Yeah, that's a perfect example. Like invite people in because you want to diversify, but then you're not actually willing to restructure things to support them. So they have a shitty experience. <laughs> I mean, it's just perfect example. Yeah. Like, why is my success riding on a qualification of this institution that I should be working towards the dismantling of? And the institution, like the educational institution being this place where like, yeah, artists maybe go to for some kind of stability, like seems like, <laughs> it, maybe it just shouldn't be the, yeah, default career. I guess we're like coming full circle. It's just like, are we getting our PhDs just so that at the end we can be like, oh god this is terrible like can I please just like uh, set up a small shop in a city that I would want to live in you know I mean I will just interject and say there's a slightly more optimistic way of looking at that which is you have the record shop which is like a perfectly respectable lovely thing to do with your life but you also have the depth of knowledge and like the richness of your mind from having done your PhD and all of these community and connections and conversations you're having and that's what keeps your life interesting in addition to your record shop and that that's actually a pretty awesome life and the only thing that makes that sound bad is exactly what you're describing which is this expectation that the only successful outcome from an academic degree is an academic job and so if you don't do that it means you failed in some way whereas actually when I imagine a world with guaranteed income for everybody and sort of money isn't a huge problem for anybody, what do I imagine people spending their time doing? Learning, going to school, doing projects, reading, thinking, talking. Like, what do we want to do? Playing soccer. I don't know. You know, all the stuff that I think keeps life fun and interesting and engaging, you know, in addition to your record store. To me, it sounds really good. It doesn't make the PhD a waste. It's just, 
getting yourself out of, and not you, me too, getting yourself out of the expectation that the only outcome from your degree is to get this job. That makes everything else feel like a failure. But I mean, it's hard, you know, it's like if you want to date somebody and then they don't want to date you and then you say, well, I didn't like him anyway. It's obviously crap because you did and you're disappointed. It's similar with this. We shouldn't lie to ourselves and say, well, I never wanted this anyway because I can't have it because you did want it and you do want it. But you can also have a really good life with plan B, actually maybe a better life in lots of ways. And of all things, like being an artist is one of the few things where you can actually continue to do it in perpetuity. You don't need an institutional affiliation to do it. I mean, it helps to have shows and things like that. But even without that stuff, there's actually nothing stopping you from doing it. Whereas if you're like a biologist who can't get a job, you don't have a lab. You're not like at home doing biology. You know what I mean? I mean, maybe. As far as I know. I think maybe that's uh, it's given me some hope. And I mean, it's the truth. Yeah. I think about this when I teach now, because I've been trying to sort of think about like ethically, if I'm going to keep teaching in these schools where the students are taking out all this debt to get art degrees with the knowledge that, I don't know, I'm making this up, but like 85% of them aren't going to become not just aren't going to become successful artists, but actually like aren't going to keep making art at all with undergrads in particular, you know, what is it that I'm teaching them? Um, and is it ethical to do this? I'm not completely sure in terms of the debt question, whether it is or not, but in terms of what you learn, I try to teach in a way where what we learn will be useful if you're going to become an artist, but it's also useful if you're going to like start a record store or be a mom or I don't know, be on the PTA or be an activist or, you know, organizing a project, thinking outside the box, working with other people, thinking clearly, like having a process, you know, asking good questions, revising stuff. Like there's all these skills that are very helpful for being an artist and they're part of the training to do it, but they're also part of the training to do a lot of other things, maybe almost every other thing. And so I try to remember that it's not like the school was wasted just because they didn't end up becoming a painter, you know? It's like a little bit something I tell myself, but I, I mostly think it's true. <laughs> is there anything that you thought we would talk about that we haven't talked about? Or is there anything that you just like would want to say or any questions you have for me? Um, well, I have no idea what we were going to talk about. This is very nice. I feel like a lot of the conversations I have where people are asking me questions, they're asking me a lot about like the content of my work, which I like talking about, but I actually find these kind of conversations sort of around like all of the things that do or don't go into supporting the ability to do that work. I find that to be equally, if not more interesting. Um, because it's really about like the life of being an artist or a creative person, which is I mean, it transforms your entire life. Like you couldn't it couldn't be I don't know, what am I trying to say? 
we like decide to be artists when we're young, when we're in school or whatever. We're like, okay, I'm going to do this. And then only in my mid thirties did I suddenly realize like, wow, I'm living a life that's quite different than the one I would have been living or that like other people who didn't choose this are living, you know, it's like a real commitment. And so, um, it's interesting to sort of reflect on that. Not that it's all good. It's just, it makes me be like, oh yeah, okay. I really, and I've made progress on certain things. Like there's things I used to be afraid of that I'm not afraid of anymore. Now I have new problems. Like anyway, um, it's nice to get to know you. I hope we get to talk more. This is so lovely, Gordon. Thank you. Thank you. On the 21st of January, Gordon wrote to me, after revisiting this conversation, I must add a few clarifications and updates. First, it was a bit of an exaggeration to say that I couldn't get any of my work done while teaching at RISD. I did a few things, including writing my essay, Why I Don't Talk About the Body, a polemic, but it really was challenging to find time to work during that period. Second, I stand by what I said about the exemplary way that education and curatorial areas of the new museum relate to one another, but there are many less positive things to say about that institution, specifically in relation to labor practices. I encourage everyone to read Dana Coble's account of organizing to unionize the new museum employees in 2019. Third, listening back, I'm a bit offended by my use of the word random to describe various non-coastal U.S. cities. I really do believe in the existence of vibrant art and culture and queer life in all sorts of places across the U.S. and have experienced many examples of such places. But my overall point stands that I didn't feel able to make that choice for the sake of an academic job, especially in relation to being transgender. It just felt too hard to imagine trying to make it work in a smaller city. Fourth, in a bizarre turn of events in the months between having this conversation with Kelly and its release, I ended up getting and taking a new job, a good tenure track sculpture position in close proximity to our home upstate. I'm just starting my second semester and I can't even express how amazing it feels to finally have institutional support for my teaching and my art practice. Not just financial support, but also wonderful facilities, colleagues, an actual office, a sculpture shop, research support, and so much else. So it seems to have quote unquote worked out, at least for now, but it doesn't change my position on the structural problems that have created this scarcity for teaching jobs that pay a living wage. And though I worked incredibly hard to get here, I also benefited from a variety of privileges that made it possible for me to hang in there as an adjunct for a decade before securing this position, which I think speaks to the ways the system has not been able to meaningfully pursue equity and inclusivity. If you're interested in hearing more excerpts from interviews I've had with people in the arts over the years, head to the project's website, thisthingwecallart.com. This podcast was funded by the Arts Council England, ArtQuest, The Gain Trust, and Tilla Studios. If you would like to help make the next season of the podcast a reality, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on iTunes, becoming a Patreon member, or donating through the PayPal link on the project's website. The episode artwork was made by Fiona Riley, and the theme song was made by Alessandro Moroni. This podcast was produced by me, your host, Kelly Lloyd. Thanks so much for listening, and tune in next week for my conversation with Nicole Morris.